want you to know that it's been a real delight to gather with you over these last day, this last day, and I look forward to our further time together in the next little while. But it's been a, it's been a joy and my heart is full, and the singing has been a special treat, and certainly was moved by the sermon last night and brought to, every time Pastor Steve preaches, I'm, I leave his sermon broken, thinking less of myself and more of Christ, and um, certainly enjoyed his ministry last evening for the same reason. But let's look at, <clears throat> excuse me, Matthew chapter 4, verse 17 is my text. One verse. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let's pray. God in heaven, we pray that your kingdom would come and that men and women would be brought to repentance that they might enter your kingdom. And we pray, Father, that this afternoon as we gather that our hearts would shout out with allegiance to our king above all else. That we would forsake this world and all that it has to offer and we would cling to this precious savior, this dying lamb who was crucified for us and is now risen. Please God in heaven, anoint the preaching of your word and anoint the hearing of your word. We pray for the spirit of God to fill us to the uttermost, that we would experience him in his fullness and that we would behold this dear Christ of ours. And it's in his name we pray, amen. You ever heard this over the last little while? Have you ever heard the phrase, let's just focus on the gospel and not get distracted with all that political stuff? How many of you have heard that? I think we've all heard that enough. And here's what, I'm gonna jump around a little bit today in my, so I'm not just gonna be in Matthew 4, I'm gonna go to a few other places. As you shall see, and you can join me in this little adventure, or you can just stay in Matthew 4, one or the other. But I believe in this little adventure that I'm going to take you on that we're going to be looking at what's going on in Matthew 4 as I attempt to develop this. But I want, I want you to know out front that I really believe that the gospel call, Jesus issues it right here. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The gospel call to repentance is a direct attack on the kingdoms of this world. The gospel call to repentance is a direct assault on all manner of wickedness in high places and low places. And this statement, Let's just focus on the gospel and not get distracted with all that political stuff in and of itself is the distraction. Because I want to submit to you this afternoon that when we're attacking the wickedness of the world, we are being faithful to the call of repentance. And it's the other ones that need to get with the program. If the kingdoms of this world are anti-Christ, which they are, the gospel is a direct attack on them. You look at what's going on in this country right now, and we've, we've taken our stand and we've, we've spoken out against this Bill C-4 thing. Every member of parliament, not one member of parliament voted against that. You want to tell me that's not anti-Christ? The kingdoms of this world are a direct attack on the kingdom of our Christ and the kingdom of our Christ when it is preached, when his gospel is preached faithfully, is a direct attack upon them. Here, here's how it looks. Let me, let me paint the picture for you right now. 
You have the fake king. You can call him whatever you want. Okay? You can call him Ford, you can call him Trudeau. Okay? You, you can call him you know, the guy that is dealing drugs on the street corner. Whatever, he thinks he's king of his own little life. Low places, high places. These people that are trying to run their own little show, they're fake kings. And there's a true king. His name's Jesus. And this spirit of Antichrist, what he has done is he has led a worldwide mutiny, a worldwide act of treason against the real king, King Jesus. High treason. And King Jesus, this is what he says to the traitors. He says, I offer you full pardon. Come and join my kingdom. That's his message to the traitors. I offer you full pardon. Come to my kingdom and receive an inheritance. But if you're going to come to my kingdom, you've got to leave that kingdom. So that your allegiance is no longer to your little bitty kingdom that you're trying to build or this big little kingdom or this big kingdom. It's little in the eyes of God that you think you're playing a game with and you're dancing to their little tune, whatever you're doing. King Jesus offers you full pardon for your treason. So leave your mutiny and come under this king without fear of reprisal by the blood of the cross. The gospel call to repentance is a direct attack on the kingdoms of this world because the gospel call is an invitation for the foot soldiers of that kingdom to forsake it and embrace the ways of Christ. So let's just focus on preaching the gospel today, shall we? So this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to try and define this whole concept of antichrist that we're talking about, offer you a little definition. Then I'm going to distill for you some New Testament scriptures to kind of hopefully show you how I've arrived at that definition. And then I'm going to offer you some examples of such characters in the Bible who are antichrist and systems. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to revisit Matthew 4, verse 17, in context of the Gospel of Matthew. And in this, I hope you will see that the Gospel that we hold and the Gospel that we preach and treasure is a direct attack on the dark kingdoms of this world. I'm a, I'm a two-kingdom man meaning I believe in the kingdom of Antichrist and the kingdom of Christ, and you're either with one or the other. That those are the only two kingdoms we know of. And King Jesus is so merciful and so kind that he would speak to the foot soldiers of that kingdom who have committed high treason against him, and he would say, come, come into my kingdom, and I'll offer you full pardon, and you get an inheritance in Emmanuel's land. So let me give you a little definition here that I've put together. And I'd submit to you that Antichrist is a dark spiritual power that opposes Christ by putting itself in the place of Christ. The power itself is personified in persons and institutions, often civil governments, that oppose Christ by putting themselves in the place of Christ. That's the key. They oppose Christ by putting themselves in the place of Christ. Whether his prophetic ministry, his priestly ministry, or his kingly ministry, his prophetic office, his priestly office, or his kingly office, or any combination of the three. Often it's all three. And so below the surface, in any era, 
of human history, there is always this dark force, this satanic force that is attempting to personify itself. And then when restraints are removed, it rises as a beast. In the case of an apostate people, Antichrist often rises under the pretense of Christianity. So a spiritual power that opposes Christ by putting itself in the place of Christ, personified in persons and institutions, often governments, that oppose Christ by putting themselves in the place of Christ. So there's a little definition that I'm going with. Let me look at a few New Testament scriptures. And you don't need to turn there if you don't want to. I'm going to be moving fairly quickly for them, through them. But you can take notes and look at them later on, too. And the first place that I want to look is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, this power is presented as the man of lawlessness, as an arbitrary power, an antinomian, one who strikes out against God's law and essentially lives by his own arbitrary law. His law, not God's law. Not the law of Christ, but the law of Antichrist. It's referred to in verse 3 of 2 Thessalonians 2 is the man of lawlessness, has no regard for the fixed standard of God's laws, so makes it up as he goes along. He confuses good and evil so that he gets to define what is good and bad. Verse 4, we're told, he's the one who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship. So he's fine with other claims to authority so long as they submit to his authority as supreme. As long as he's over the other claims to authority so that their ultimate allegiance is to him, he's okay with it. Could be multiple, multiple religions, multiple cultures. He doesn't care as long as he's the center point of it. Beyond that, he exalts himself over the one true God, verse 4. Says he takes his seat in the temple of God. Now, there's historical reference points to this. 168 BC, Antiochus Epiphanes invaded Jerusalem, built the idol of Zeus in the temple, sacrificed a pig there, and turned the rooms of the temple into brothels. There's an Antichrist figure. Between 66 and 70 AD, Zealots took over the temple, desecrated it. The Romans took over the temple and desecrated it and eventually burned it to the ground. This points back to a similar reference in the book of Daniel. Of course, in the New Testament, the temple of God is not made by cold stones that are stacked upon each other. The temple of the living God is made by living stones, the people of God who assemble to worship together, and their assembly as they worship appears a powerful manifestation of God. That's why we gather. Right? We gather is the temple, the assembling together of the living stones of God, the household of God wherein God dwells. And this lawless character, this shady character, attempts to seize control of the household of God, God's people in their worship. So he exalts himself over the temple, takes his seat in the temple, and exhibits himself as God-like. In verse 4, it says, proclaiming himself to be God. Now, proclaim is not necessarily verbalized. The, the word there does not necessarily infer there is a verbalization of the proclamation, but rather to substantiate by action. It could be translated to exhibit to display, to show, to show forth for public recognition, as one lexicon says, is the proclamation that he himself has got. Not necessarily going up and saying, I am God, but acting in a way that exhibits God-like characteristics so that the inference in the actions is God-like, or he must be God if he can act that way. Antichrist is a spiritual force that was 
restrained, or is restrained, but when the restraints are lifted, he moves into the seat of power. Personally, and I believe eventually this will take place on the last day before the second coming of our Lord Jesus. But some of us will differ on that. But I believe, I believe that there are manifestations of this from time to time throughout human history where restraints are temporarily removed so that there are brutal manifestations of this character. And you see this in the Bible, and I trust I'll show them. You'll see that in a moment as I go there. Antichrist is a spiritual force that is restrained, but the restraints are removed so that he is lifted up by his wicked and dark power to deceive people. According to verses 7 through 9, Thomas Manton said, of course, when Thomas Manton was commenting on this, he certainly believed that the Antichrist was the Church of Rome, and specifically the papacy but I think if you distill the principles, you can see how this would apply to our own situation. And he said, that is meant not of what he professeth in words, but of what he doeth in deeds. Not of what he says, but what he does. That's how you tell whether he's the man of lawlessness. So there's one example in the New Testament. Ultimately, the text tells us that Christ will come and destroy him. Another example of Antichrist in the New Testament, another place where we find him is in the first epistle of John, chapter 2, verse 18, 22, and chapter 4, verse 3. In these texts, Antichrist first appears as a term in the Bible. The word anti does not necessarily mean that he says he's Christ, but he opposes Christ by substituting himself in the place of Christ. He opposes Christ by substituting himself in the place of Christ. Antichrist comes as many, verse 18. Children, it is the last hour, 1 John 2, verse 18. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. This force is attempting to unify Antichrist into an Antichrist manifestation, and Antichrist is one who denies Christ, according to verse 22, which says... Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. Okay? So the Antichrist denies the Father and the Son. And if you remember at the baptism of Jesus Christ and at his transfiguration, what did the Father say about the Son? He said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. He was pronouncing verbally in front of the, in front of the apostles that this is the Christ. He was quoting, referencing Psalm 2, saying, this is your messianic king. Right here. And the spirit of the Antichrist will deny that pronouncement from God the Father on Jesus Christ at his baptism and at the transfiguration. Antichrist is of the world. He speaks worldly things. And he is listened to by the world. First John He's got a lot of cultural capital, in other words. 1 John 4, verse 5. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. Speaking of Antichrist, going back up to verse 3, where it says, This is the spirit of Antichrist which you heard was coming and now is in the world. Goes on, addresses the little children, you are from God. And then in verse 5, goes back to reference these spirits or these manifestations of Antichrist in these people that had caused the problems in the church. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. Antichrist. Second John, verse 7, again says that Antichrist denies the messianic incarnation of Jesus Christ. Okay? essentially the pronouncement of God the Father and Jesus Christ at the baptism and the transfiguration. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Announcing for those who heard, quoting from Psalm 2 or referencing Psalm 2, the beloved Son of God whom the kings of the earth must kiss. It's him. And Antichrist denies that. Revelation chapter 13 is the final place Outside of the Gospel of Matthew that I wish to turn this afternoon to 
look at this particular matter. I don't want to spend a lot of time in this text, but I want to highlight just a couple of things that I think are worth noting in it. I don't have time to exposit it in full, but the reference is to the beast. And especially when read in light of the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 7 and 8 is unquestionably in reference to a godless civil government. So if you look at Daniel 7 and 8, the references are to beasts. And what are the beasts? Well, they're various civil governments that Daniel clearly interprets as civil governments. And you get to Revelation 13. And the reference to this beastly creature coming out of the sea, rising, is pointing us back to the book of Daniel. Unquestionably a civil government. There ought not be any debate over that. And this civil government that is the manifestation of Antichrist, it is the incarnation of Antichrist into the human affairs on this world. It takes on the likeness of Satan and it starts to use the sword of the state to punish the good and protect the wicked. It apes Christ, it mimics Christ, it fakes Christ. It pretends to be Christ. It takes on, like I said, Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, it, it takes on attributes or exerts attributes or declares attributes that would lead you to believe that this creature is God. He's godlike in his own eyes and the eyes of those who follow him. For example, in chapter 13, verse 4 of Revelation, he receives worship. And they worship the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worship the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? Verse 8 says something similar, And all who dwell on earth will worship it, everyone whose name is not written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. They will worship it. Beyond that, he claims, as he apes Christ, pretends to be Christ, takes on these Christ-like characteristics, and his statements and in his being, he claims authority over the entire earth. Look at verse 7. It says, also it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over what? Every tribe and every people and every language and nation. What does that sound like? It's Christ. Now, this isn't Christ. This is Antichrist, aping Christ, pretending to be him. But if you look at chapter 7, verse 9, the same thing is said of Christ in the book of Revelation. He has authority over every people, every tribe, every language, and every nation. And one day, they'll all worship him. Beyond that, he performs signs and wonders. He can do marvelous things. Verse 13, it performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. This man is a miracle worker. I mean, if, if he says it with his mouth, he can turn a man into a woman. <laughs> if you just give him your children's inheritance, he will save you from global warming. And if you don't have enough money, he'll just create it ex nihilo and print it. Miracles. And if you just give up worshiping the true Christ, he'll save you from a communicable disease. Marvelous. You want magic? He's got magic. You want tricks? He's got tricks. You want potions? He's got them. But there's a cost. He replaces the law of God with his own law. Verse 16 and 17, it says, And also... It causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. He has a mark. Those who follow him get a mark on the forehead and a mark on the right hand. What's that mean? Well, I believe it's a reference to the Shema of God. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Where it says in verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets 
between your eyes, your forehead. The allegiance to God, the one true God, and allegiance to his law is to be on your right hand where you work and on your forehead between your eyes where you think. An antichrist wants your forehead and your hand marked. One way or another, it's a demand to replace your allegiance to God with the allegiance to this God-like state that thinks it's God and everybody else thinks it's God, but it's not. It's fake. It's an ape. It's a clown. It's a mimic. It's theater. The man that takes the mark of the beast replaces his allegiance to God with his allegiance to the beast so that God's law which should have been in his mind and on his hands, is not there. The law of Christ is not there. And what rises in its place but the law of man, the law of the beast. And so there's some New Testament passages that I wanted to look at. To show why I believe what I believe, that this spiritual power that opposes Christ personifies him in persons and institutions and often in the civil government is antichrist. It's a spiritual power that mimics Christ, even to the point of attempting to take on flesh and human beings and human institutions, living through man to propagate his godless reign on earth. Again, Thomas Manton said of him, he is a usurper, an invader of the empire of the Son of God. He is a traitor. He is a turncoat. He is a pretender. He is every vile word you could ever think of, all to describe him. This one force or power, manifestation of evil. Some will say Christ never, it's an interesting comment, you know, Christ never talked about the bad behavior of the civil magistrate in his day. Well, I want to go back to Matthew and I just want to deal with that for a moment. And then I want to illustrate this in the Old Testament. I'll give you some illustrations of these manifestations of Satan in the Old Testament, and then I'm going to bring you up to the New Testament. I'm going to put this passage from Matthew chapter 4, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand within its context. Scripturally is what I'm doing right now, and then with its immediate context in Matthew. So I just tried to paint for you a New Testament context for this manifestation of evil as it pertains to Jesus' call to repent. For the kingdom of heaven is a hand. Matthew chapter 20, verse 25 through 26. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great one, ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Matthew 20, verse 25 through 26 is speaking of nations that are godless, a people that are godless, and what are they characterized by? But by masters who lord it over them. Those who rise to power perceive themselves as slave owners, and the people under them are their slaves. In fact, verse 26 says, It shall not be so among you, or rather, at the end of verse 25, after it says the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. Jesus doesn't have a problem with people using authority. The word here translated as authority or exercise, the phrase the great ones exercise authority over them. The lexicons indicate that that could also translate is tyrannize them or misuse official authority. So Jesus, the idea that Jesus wouldn't condemn the abuse of civil power is just a complete lie because Christian leaders are there to serve their people. They use their authority for the service of their people. 
The godless use their authority for their own service. And they see their people as pawns and tools, whether tools to get votes from, or tools to manipulate, or tools to squeeze money out of. That's all they see them as. So Jesus did condemn Roman tyranny, by the way, in Matthew 20. Over and again, in Scripture, godless leaders rule arbitrarily while godly leaders are shepherd kings. Jesus is our good shepherd. And the arbitrary rule is antichrist. It's putting oneself in the place of Christ. And opposing Christ by inserting a human being or a human institution right there where Christ should be. It's antichrist. It's the opposition of Christ by inserting oneself in the place of Christ. I want to give you just a few examples of how this manifests itself in the Bible. And then I hope to bring you back into Matthew chapter 4 where my text is. And say I'm not expositing that text. Well, I'm trying to exposit it within the context, what I believe is the context of all of Scripture. And then get to, you'll see where this is going once I get to the first few chapters of Matthew. So in Genesis chapter 6, I think you see the first manifestation of this ugliness on earth through a man named Lamech. I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 5, rather. Genesis chapter 4, rather. Genesis 4, verse 17. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore a son. And when he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. It's a city of man. Chapter 4, verse 17. It's the city of man. And this city of man came from Cain. Cain was a wanderer. He wandered away from God's law. He wasn't building his life or his city here on the foundation of God. But instead of building it on the foundation of God, he was building it on the foundation of man. That is indicated by the fact that he named the city after a man, Enoch. Not after God, after a man. They built this city. And this city was wicked. Because it transferred to another man in Enoch's line, who was in Cain's line. Verse 18, to Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Meshushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. We're introduced to Lamech, so he's the heir of this great civilization that Cain built and named after his son Enoch, the city of man, this godless city. And what do we learn about Lamech? But he's a titan of a man, and he's so wicked. He's, he's, this, is the, this is the first instance of polygamy in the Bible. Verse 19, Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other was Zillah. He was a womanizer. He took two wives because he saw women as to be his prized assets. As opposed to the way the Bible teaches us, to treat our wives with love and dignity, care. And his wives bear him sons who are rather impressive. We have the first son named Jabal. In verse 20, Adah bore him Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and of livestock. He, was, he developed animal husbandry. Verse 20 Verse 21, rather, his brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of those who play the lyre and the pipe. He de developed musical arts. Verse 22, he has another son. I'm sorry, verse 22. Uh, verse 22, Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Nama. So he's got three sons. Jabal, he develops animal husbandry. Jubal, he develops the musical arts, and Tubal-Cain, who forges tools and weapons with metal. So this is quite the guy. He's raised quite the group of sons here. 
He's a titan over this city, and under him, we have what we would call progress. Progress. Progress in animal husbandry, progress in musical arts, progress in the forging of tools and weapons. These are impressive times. But this man has no direction from God. His family has wandered as the son of Cain. He has wandered far from God. So while there is musical ability, he sings a song that doesn't honor the Lord. What commentators agree is a very sophisticated instance of Hebrew poetry occurs in verse 23 through 24, Lamech's song, a sophisticated instance of Hebrew poetry. Lamech said to his wives, Ad and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. This is your first instance of gangster rap, children. <laughs> it's right there. And this song is about killing. This song is about killing a man for wounding him. Verse 23, I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. And who does he sing it to? He sings it to Ada and Zillah. He's impressing the girls. How is he impressing the girls? With his chauvinistic bravado. Look how tough I am. A guy wounded me and I killed him. And there's something utterly blasphemous that occurs at the end of the song. Verse 24, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. If you go all the way up in the text, we are told by God that he put a mark on Cain. And if anyone was to strike out vengeance on Cain, God would return judgment upon him sevenfold. In this text, a man doesn't kill anyone but wounds Lamech, and Lamech strikes out 77-fold. God's punishment for killing Cain was sevenfold. Lamech's punishment for wounding him, his punishment he inflicted on someone for wounding him, was 77-fold. What's Lamech doing? He's essentially saying, who needs God when you have swagger like me? I don't need God. And in fact... My punishment's greater than God's. If you want to see vengeance, don't look to God. Look to me. I'll show you how it's done. What does he do? He replaces the law of God with the law of man and exerts himself as greater than God. Greater than God. Babel is similar. Chapter 11 of Genesis. The people build... Bricks, there's technological advancement. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had bricks for stone and bitumen for mortar. They had bricks to build things, and the desire was for their own name, just like Cain City that he transferred to Lamech. In verse 4, they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. They desire a name for themselves. They desire to build an impressive structure. It's a tower that goes into the heavens. They're trying to reach God by their own efforts. They're trying to exert their supremacy. And not only that, in, in, it, right embedded in their desire is a desire to not just show pride, but blatantly rebel against God. Because look at what they want to do. Look at their concern is. What does it say? Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Well, what did God say in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28? And what did God repeat to Noah in chapter 9, verse 27? Fill the earth. Why do they want to build a city? Because they don't want to do what God says. They don't want to fill the earth. They want to do it their way. I did it my way, right? That's essentially what they're doing. Well, God has his way with them, and they receive their judgment, and they're just another 
city, another government, another magistrate in the dust heap of human history that tried to be Christ. And God showed them. It's like he showed Lamech when that flood came. Well, he showed these guys when he dispersed them. It's like he showed Sodom. Well, I mean, we don't have to talk about what, how Sodom tried to replace the law of God with the law of man. He did, it's like he did with Egypt. You want to talk about a government that tries to control worship? You know, if a lot of churches were around under the, the rise of Pharaoh, there'd be a plague upon Egypt, and all the churches would say, look to Pharaoh, he'll save you from the plague. Think about that. Not look to God, look to Pharaoh. Moses didn't look to Pharaoh. He looked to the Lord, and the Lord rescued him. Babylon, Assyria, Greece, Rome, all of them. A spiritual power personified in people and institutions, typically civil governments, that oppose Christ and put themselves in his place. That's the definition I gave you. I just tried to show you some examples. Now, let's get back to my text, Matthew 4. Now that I've defined, I've tried to distill my definition from the New Testament. I've tried to give you some examples in the Old Testament. A spiritual power personified in people, institutions that oppose God by putting themselves in the place of God, often civil governments. Oppose Christ by putting themselves in the place of Christ, often civil governments. We saw it in Lamech, city of man. We saw it in Babel. We saw it in Sodom. We see it in Egypt, so on. They replace the rule of God, the word of God, with the word of man and the rule of man. So that their right hands are no longer the tools of God, but they're the tools of man. And that their minds are no longer the tools of God. They're no longer loving God with all of their minds and all of their strength. They're loving these dark spiritual forces with them. And by the time of Christ, the entire world, I believe, was darkened and had succumbed to Antichrist. By the time we get to Matthew 4, that's where we're at in human history. Rome and Israel itself had become a manifestation of Antichrist. And the first few chapters of Matthew establish the world has been taken by this dark spiritual force and that Christ is a beam of light that has come to pardon the traitors and give them an inheritance in Emmanuel's land. He's a beam of light in the darkness to pardon the traitors and give them an inheritance in Emmanuel's land. That Christ with his preaching is actually attacking the kingdom of darkness that has manifested itself in the entire world, high places, low places, civil government, religious authorities, everywhere. So I'll, I'll give you an example. Why I see that the world is in Matthew is it's clear that it's been taken by darkness. And, and the early chapters of Matthew are an assertion that Christ himself is the remedy to this. So, for example, Matthew goes to great lengths to tell us whose son Jesus is in verse 1 of chapter 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Of course, David was the king, the great king, the man after God's own heart, and it would be David's son that would sit on the throne forever, according to God's covenant. Chapter 1, verse 6, again, we're told that Jesus is the son of David. And the angel's words to Joseph in chapter 1, verse 20, Jesus is the son of David. And what we're being told again and again and again in the gospel of Matthew, in these early chapters of Matthew, these early words, is a king has been born. This is the birth of a king. And if he has a king, well, he better have a kingdom. The true king Jesus then on these first pages of Matthew, as he's presented in the son of David, the heir, the Messiah, the true king Jesus is contrasted with the false king Herod at his birth. So you can look in chapter 2. What are the 
verse 2, it says, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? What's the wise men ask, right? What does is, what is Herod do? When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. Why do you think he was troubled? Because you got a bunch of foreign kings showing up to pay homage to this man who was born the king of the Jews, and Herod the king is troubled. There's a reason he's troubled, because this is a threat. This is a threat to his government. Troubles him, as it should. Because every knee will bow to Christ, and he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And that ought to threaten him. Verse 16, actually, Herod resorts to an arbitrary rule. He was tricked by the wise men, and it says in verse 16, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. So he's so desperate to protect his kingship that he resorts to an arbitrary rule. Starts killing children. Protect his own interests, not the interests of King Jesus, but his own interests. He wants King Jesus dead. Unlike Herod, however, Jesus was qualified as king. Herod was a descendant of Esau, and he had been basically a Roman pawn. So he, he wasn't a legitimate ruler, but Jesus was the descendant of David. So it's very genealogy. You can ascertain that he's qualified, but Herod is not. Herod was not qualified to be king. Jesus was qualified to be king. Herod was threatened by Jesus' arrival. And Herod resorts to an arbitrary rule to punish, or at least to extinguish, this threat to what he perceives is his empire. And then this new order to subvert the kingdom of darkness is announced at the baptism of Jesus Christ. You move forward beyond chapter 1, which declares him as the king, son of David. Chapter 2, where he's contrasted with Herod, the false king, the antichrist king, the pawn of Rome. To chapter 3, the baptism of Jesus, where he's actually confirmed publicly as king. John declares the competing kingdom in his sermon in verse 2 of chapter 3. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's John preaching at that point. The Spirit of God at the baptism that descends upon Jesus in the form of a dove symbolizes that a new world order is beginning. How do I know that? Well, because... Just at creation, it was the Spirit of God that was hovering over the face of the deep. Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. And just after the new world, or just as the new world was beginning in Genesis 8, after the flood, what does Noah do? But he sends out a dove, hovers over the new world. And so there's something new that's happening here with Christ. That's what I'm trying to tell you. And I think significantly... In Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1, it says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. This is a man that is bringing forward true justice. He understands not arbitrary rule, but what true justice looks like because he's God himself, the just one, the righteous one. And then the Father's voice comes from heaven in Matthew chapter 3 at the baptism. It's, it's beautiful. You have the Father in heaven. You have the Son being baptized. You have the Spirit of God descending upon him in the form of a dove. You, you, the Trinity is on full display in this beautiful picture. And the Father has something to say. And the Father in chapter 3 verse 17, it says, Behold, a voice came from heaven. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. This is the Father's voice. I talked about that when I was in 1 John. This is a reference to Psalm chapter 2 verse 7. And of course, Psalm chapter 2 verse 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12 is a call for the kings of the earth to obey the one true king and kiss him. To pay homage to him. And so in 
In this declaration that this is my beloved son, this reference to Jesus being the Messiah, it's a declaration that he is the king of kings. All of Matthew is being built up to declare that we've got a new sheriff in town. There's a new king. The spirit's hovering over him. Something new's happening. He's the descendant of David. He's not like Herod, the Antichrist king, who kills children on a whim. No. This is the true shepherd king. And then you get into the temptation scene, and it gets a little more interesting because the temptation is Satan's offer of the kingdoms of Antichrist to Jesus. Chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory and said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Hey, you understand? If, if you want the kingdoms of the world, take the mark of the beast. Worship Satan. And then it's yours. You can have everything you want. And it seems to me that as the devil is saying this, the devil is actually indicating that he believes that he himself, Satan himself, believes that Satan himself is the king of kings and the lord of lords. Because he thinks all the empires of the world are under him. And so he's, he's declaring in this competition with Jesus in the desert that he is the king of kings and the lord of lords. This is conflict. He's putting himself in the place of Christ. And by the way, the, Jesus fires back at Satan beautifully. In verse 10, then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve, which is a declaration, is a quotation of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13, which was given to Israel just prior to Israel entering the promised land. In other words, Jesus is saying, you don't get the blessing of God by assimilating with Antichrist. The Jews didn't conquer the promised land. Israel didn't conquer the promised land by assimilating to their false gods. They conquered the promised land through their allegiance and the power that came from the true God. Jesus is saying, if I'm going to be successful in my mission, it's not coming from you, Satan. It's coming from God. So, and then you have a prophecy in, just before our text that I'm preaching in verse, chapter 4, verse 13 through 16, says, And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Now that's a quotation from Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2 specifically. And it's a, talking about the birth of the Christ child in Isaiah 9. And of course, you go through that passage in Isaiah 9, and you get to Isaiah 9, verse 6, where, where it says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there shall be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. There's a declaration that he is the king. So all of this leading up to this little verse, this first sermon of Jesus in Matthew, is a declaration that he's the true king. The first few chapters of Matthew establish, as I said, that the world is taken by darkness. It's under the Romans. It's under a fake king, Herod. And that Christ is attacking and pillaging this kingdom of darkness to pardon the traitors and bring them into his kingdom so they get an inheritance in his kingdom. Antichrist is a spiritual power personified in people and institutions that oppose Christ and put themselves in his place, and that's often government. See it in Matthew chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4 with Herod. 
So what I've done now is I've defined Antichrist. I've distilled the New Testament teaching. I've offered some biblical examples, and I've put my passage, Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, within the context of Matthew. And I hope I've demonstrated within Matthew's context that the world was taken, it was dark, it was under the kingdom of darkness, and that Christ is attacking the kingdom of darkness to pardon the traitors and give them an inheritance in Emmanuel's land. And it's within this context of Matthew that Jesus arrives and he preaches this passage. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. What's that mean? Change. Change your allegiances. Change teams. Change completely. Stop doing what you're doing and start doing something else. Turn your ways. Amend your ways. Repent. Turn. And so what... You've been taken by a seditious plot against the true king. You're a bunch of mutinous traitors, and he offers them full pardon and a place in his kingdom through repentance. But here's the deal. If you want to be in this kingdom of heaven that he's talking about, this kingdom that is now competing with these dark kingdoms of this earth, you've got to repudiate your allegiance to them. You've got to renounce your allegiance to them. You've got to abdicate your allegiance to them. You've got to disavow your allegiance to them. You've got to turn your back on them. And you've got to follow Jesus Christ. The call to repent, by the way, is a call that goes to the high, and it is a call that goes to the low. Everybody. Everybody has to repent, whoever you are. You can hear my voice. King Jesus demands, demands that you repent. Demands. It's basically you turn or you burn. Choose. Choose. Look at what he's saying here. Repudiate the way of Lamech because there's a new king that's here. Forsake the way of Babel because the right king has come. Disavow the way of Sodom because the real king is in town. And forsake the leaven of Egypt because the real king has come to set you free. Damn the way of Marx. Because the true king has come to give you heaven. And abandon the way of 21st century Canada. And enter the kingdom of his marvelous light. He will pardon the traitors. And he'll give you a piece of property in Emmanuel's land. Look, at, there's free pardon for your treason. And there's an inheritance in Emmanuel's land. And by the way, the word gospel in the first century was used by Roman propagandists to announce the birth or ascension of an emperor. So the very proclamation of a gospel message has both political and religious implications. The preaching is always political when the gospel of Jesus Christ is preached under the nose of Antichrist. Always. Because you're attacking his kingdom. And if he has the levers of politics, you're a threat to him. Our preaching must attack Antichrist because Antichrist stands in the place of Christ. And King Jesus deserves his inheritance. Antichrist is the usurper of the cosmos, and the cosmos belong to our Lord. So let's preach the gospel. Look, the hope of this country is not found in protests. I just want to let you in on a little secret. It's not found in your politicians. In fact, it's by looking to the politicians that we got in this mess. It's found in Christ. Christ. It's found in his gospel, his kingdom. So let's preach the gospel. Because Christ alone 
has the power to dismantle the works of Satan. The preaching of Christ and the honor of Christ and his gracious call to forsake the treason, receive full pardon, and have a bountiful inheritance in Emmanuel's land is the only hope of the nations.